0: Why don't you welcome Cathy to the stage as she uh, brings the word tonight. Thank you. Great to be here, guys. Uh, as usual, um, I might be struggling with the light. Yeah, does this go up any higher? Oh, it does. Thank you so much, Ryan. So Now, if it's closer to my eyes, it should be okay. Yeah, that's better. Thank you. So we're continuing a series um, from last week that we've started called How Not to Read the Bible. So this is a book by Dan Kimball. And my topic tonight is science and faith. Do you have to choose? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab there's a bit of groaning. Oh my gosh, this is one of my favorite topics to speak about. Um, I'm really excited. But I thought I'd start with a bit of an intro about me. So, for me, I became a Christian when I was 18, and I was in my very first year at ANU in a science degree. Um, Somebody who was very pastorally minded grabbed hold of me and figured that I needed discipling. So um, they brought me along to the local, well, the campus Christian group, and they were such a great bunch of people. They were 100% committed to the to the you know authority of God's word over our lives. And they, you know, I joined one of their small groups and for the very first time I learnt to read the Bible systematically and really learn what the Christian faith was as it was revealed in the scriptures. And so, you know, they discipled me into a very disciplined Christian life. We were encouraged to be committed to following Jesus and sharing him with our friends on the campus. But at the same time, they didn't insist upon taking the Bible as a scientific textbook So on the one hand, we were studying the Bible and seeking to follow Jesus. On the other hand, they were encouraging us in our study that pursuit of a scientific knowledge was not, you know, in conflict in any way. And we were encouraged in both those areas. So as a young believer, I I grew up with this sense of, um, you know, there wasn't a conflict between faith and science. There was a sense of those, um, that the science side and the faith side being complementary rather than being in conflict. So I've always felt a bit of a sense of dismay when I sort of hear the narrative that sometimes plays out that faith and science are in conflict with each other, that you have to choose between them. Um, and so I've collected books and read a number of authors over the years on, the, on that topic And so I guess that's why I'm here tonight. That's why Cade's asked me to speak on this topic. Um, Is is faith in conflict with science? Do I have to choose between the two? Now, I feel this is a very, very big subject, um, and I'm probably not going to cover everything that you'd like me to talk about tonight. I'm going to break it down, though, into six sub-questions because I feel like I can only answer that question by first going through a few points with you. It's really important if you're going to talk about something controversial that you define your terms. So we're going to start by saying, well, what is science and what is the gospel? I want to give you um, a little bit of an overview about how some scientists who are Christians explain the way they see the interaction between their faith and their science. I want to talk about how understanding the genre of Genesis, the book of Genesis, uh, helps us to understand how to interpret it. I want to go on and say, well, I don't, I don't see a conflict between science and faith, but I do see a battle out there and I want to talk about where I see the real battle. And I want to talk about, finally, how do we share our faith? How do we share the gospel more effectively in a, a science-saturated world, okay? Um, so at the bottom of that slide, you'll see my phone number. Um, I, I get so many spam calls every day that a few more won't make any difference, but if you wanna sell my number, I don't really care. My son is very, very strict on me. He says, mother, do not answer any calls if you don't know who they're from. So I've learned my lesson. But if, if, if I say something that upsets you or you really strongly disagree with or you want to chat more, if you want more information, I really would love um, to, to talk to you, have, a, have a, a chat in a bit more detail. Feel free to send me a text message or um, find me on Facebook. Um, I'm always up for a cup of, cup of coffee and, and talking. So let's make a start. What is science? What is science? I might need the next slide, please. Science is the pursuit and application of knowledge and understanding of the natural and social world following a systematic methodology based on evidence. So I've just pulled that off the internet. Basically what it's saying is science is the study of the natural world and science is about using a systematic approach to gaining information, you know, for example, that's based on evidence, so observation or experiments. So science is limited to its inquiry about the natural world. So science, by definition, is neither theistic nor atheistic. It's simply science. it's, It's looking at the natural world, so it can't comment at all on the God question. Therefore, by definition, I see no conflict between science and faith. Let me give you an illustration So when I come home from work, I might go and I might turn the kettle on and my husband Ian might come into the kitchen and say, well, why is the water boiling? Well, I could answer him in two ways. I could say, well, it's because I turned on the electricity and the electricity is flowing into the jug and it's going into the element inside the jug and the element is transforming the electricity into heat. Now, by the laws of thermodynamics, the heat transfers into the water molecules and makes them vibrate faster and faster and faster until those little H2O molecules break away from the bonds to the other neighbouring H2O molecules and they gain enough energy so they can change state from a liquid to a gaseous state. And that is why the water is boiling. Or I could simply say to him... Honey, the water is boiling because I want a cup of tea. I hope you can see that those two answers aren't in conflict. One answer, the scientific answer, answers the question of how. The other answer is a more philosophical question. It answers the question of why and who. And that's how I see the relationship between science and faith. Science answers the how questions but cannot comment on on the higher questions of who and why. I need my faith to comment on those questions. So those different sorts of knowledge are not in conflict, they are complementary. However, faith and science has been portrayed as being in conflict both inside the church and outside the church. So I think we need to get back to what is faith? What is the core of the gospel? And I want to read to you a passage from 1 Corinthians 15. The ladies, um, at the ladies' retreat this, this last um, couple of weekends ago, Ange um, read to this, us this passage, and she was pointing out, you know, the core aspect of the faith. So before this passage, just Paul um, makes this introduction in verses uh, 1 and 2. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you were saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. So Paul's getting ready to tell them, here's some core aspects of the faith that you need to take your stand on. They're non-negotiables of the faith. And if you don't take your stand on them, then your faith might be in vain. Then he goes on in verse 3. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. That's the gospel that that Paul's teaching them. That phrase, according to the scriptures, brings in to an understanding of the gospel, the core bits of the Old Testament, you know, that Christ fulfilled the prophecies about him in the Old Testament. And it brings into into the picture, you know, uh, uh, it presupposes that God is creator, and that God is personal as revealed in Christ. So the foundation of our faith is the historical life, death and resurrection of Christ. And Orthodox faith additionally recognises God as the cause of the universe and God as personal. But within that general framework of Orthodox faith, There might be different views of how exactly God went about his creative process. And those are not the core aspects of the faith. There's a really wide range of views. Let me just name a couple of them. Young earth creationism or the appearance of age, uh, day age theory, ancient earth theory or theistic evolution. All these views agree that God is the cause and that God is personal and that he created humans as special and distinct from the rest of creation. And so um, on 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 the core aspects of our faith, what is the gospel and the nature of God and man, we agree but we might have to be prepared to agree to disagree on the finer details of how God actually worked it all out. So once we understand what the core of the gospel is, I think we can be more confident in saying that faith and science are not in conflict with those core matters. Let me go on. I want to share with you a couple from a couple of scientists who are Christians and, and just show you how they explain the way um, they see science as faith interacting, not because their views are any better than any other people's views, but just you can, so you can understand. I hope that you'll have people come over from the university who will want to come and learn about faith. And these questions might be important to them. It might be important that you don't shut them down because they have a scientific mind. And and these couple of people that I want to I want to share with you tonight might help you with that. Um, I haven't made the point though. I, I'm not reading Genesis one to you tonight. I'm kind of assuming that you know what Genesis one says. Okay? If you've not read it, it's very easy to find. Read it tonight. Just. Page one of the Bible, okay? All right, so how how do some Christians who have a science mind explain faith and science? Okay, let me just speak to the elephant in the room. Here's the problem. Science says the earth is a few billion years old, give or take a couple of million years. Now, Genesis 1 talks about six days of creation, So we've got to ask the question, does that conflict with with, with science? Now, I want to also make the point that God could create the world in an instant, okay? God is almighty. He could do it any way he wants. He could create it in six 24-hour days if he wanted, or he could have created it in a longer period. And I don't want to assume that my view about that is right. Really, the only way we're going to know for sure is we get to go uh, to God in the new creation and we're going to have this amazing chat and we're going to find out exactly what happened. But let me just go over a couple of these views. So many Christians don't read the six days in Genesis 1 as six 24-hour time periods. Many Christians see those days as representative of longer periods of time. Now, other Christians feel concerned about that and I understand the concern because they're afraid that if we allow, uh, allow it to be a longer period of time, we're edging our way or sliding our way towards allowing some discussion of evolution. And They don't want to allow evolution a foot in the door. And I understand why because atheistic evolution, as, is, as it's expressed by science alone, says that um, life came about by chance, operating on natural selection. And if it came about by chance, then humans are no longer special. So I get the concern. They're concerned that the value that God places on humanity will be lost if we go down that path. But I just want you to see that that could be a misunderstanding of what some of the scientists who are Christians are saying. They don't don't accept atheistic evolution. But, for example, Francis Collins is somebody who, who would be a proponent of the view of theistic evolution. And this is what he says. If I could have the next slide. He says he puts his science and faith together and he says he has no problem doing that. He said, I believe uh, that God had a plan to create creatures with whom he could have fellowship, in whom he could inspire the moral law, in whom he could infuse the soul, and who he would give free will as a gift. I believe God used the mechanism of evolution to achieve that goal. And it wasn't random to God. Just hear that, what he says there. He had the plan all along of how it would turn out and there's no ambiguity about that. So what I want you to understand that there's a difference between believing in evolution as a mechanism and evolution as a worldview, as an atheistic worldview. I'm not saying that you have to believe this. I'm just pointing out this is what one person believes and you might come across people like this. Another one I read a lot of is Professor John Lennox. Now, he doesn't hold to theistic evolution in the same way Francis Collins does, but he does have an ancient earth view. That is, he believes that the days in, crea- in creation in Genesis 1 span a longer period of time. And this is what John Lennox says. Oh, he's already up there. The fact that scripture, although it could be inter- interpreted in terms of a young earth, you can interpret Genesis 1 that way, yep, but it does not require such an interpretation. There are the other possible interpretations in terms of ancient earth that do not compromise the authority of Scripture. So whatever uh, either of these views, they still understand Genesis as, as, as speaking about God's special creation of humans. They still say, you know, that humans are special and that... They, they adhere to the Christian doctrine of the sanctity of life from the womb to the tomb. They, they understand that God created people as his image bearers, as revealed in Genesis 1 and 2. And so to get to the book that we're talking about, Dan Kimball also sees the way God created the world, the view about exactly how creation happened as being a non-core belief. He sees it as being one of those types of things that we can agree to disagree on. And he sees it's quite important that we're willing to do that. Because clearly in his pastoral um, experience, as he writes about in the book, he's had young people come across his path who are leaving the faith. They've been to university, they've learnt a bit of science, they've gone back to their home church, and their home church has said, well, you know, you have to believe that the earth was created in six 24-hour days. And if you don't believe that, you're rejecting Jesus. Okay, That's what the people that he's come across. And Dan Kimball is clearly grieved about that. He says, this is horrifying because it is entirely unnecessary. So I want you to think about that and understand what's at stake and And, you know, what are our core beliefs? And is it really worth making this much of a big deal about the exact way you understand Genesis 1? Let me go on. Let me go on to talk about genre. How does understanding the genre of Genesis 1 help? Um, In our first session, we talked about genre. Remember we said, um, if you were here last week, that the Bible is not a single book, it's a... Library of books. Yay, some of you are here. That's right. So there's different books within the Bible and, and they might be interpreted or they might be read as different genres. So what we mean by genre is writing style. Some is poetic, some is history, some is law, some is prophecy and the different style is important. We have to understand that when we read it so that we interpret it properly. There's a wonderful article by John Dixon on the, Genes- uh, on the genre of Genesis 1. The difficulty with Genesis is, is probably a book that contains more than one genre within it. He's written this wonderful article called The Genesis of Everything, where he talks in detail about genre. It's freely available on the internet. But uh, what he says is he thinks that people who have a six-day, 24-hour time period view Um, six-day creationists. He says, well, both six-day creationists and atheists who criticise Genesis 1 may be making the same mistake about genre. They're trying to read Genesis 1 as historical prose. What he means by that historical prose, like a historical report of what's happened, like a scientific textbook. He, He says he thinks that's a mistake, he says, for over a century now, a great many biblical historians have detected in the Bible's opening words a style other than simple prose and a purpose other than to explain how the universe was made. These two issues, genre and purpose, are critical for understanding the foundational portion of the Bible. He says, Genesis 1 is not written in the style of a historical report. He says the original Hebrew is marked by intricate structure and uses many poetic features, one of them being a number symbolism. It's, it's amazing um, when he explains what's in the Hebrew. And those features are not found in other parts of the Bible that we do recognise as historical documents, for example, the Gospels, the eyewitness accounts. And John Dixon says he knows some people are going to be worried that if we can't view it as a scientific text, people might water down the meaning. But he says none of this should trouble modern Christians, as if truths expressed by literary devices were somehow less true than those expressed by simple prose. Let me give you an example of what he means by that, by, by truths expressed by literary device. So everyone knows, right, the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells, okay? So have you ever thought, was did Jesus really meet a guy that was going down Jericho Road and got beaten up? Like did he go into one of the parties that he went to and and, you know, he met this actual guy? Or was Jesus telling... Just a story that he made up to make a point. And does it really matter which one it is? Either way, whether there really was a guy going down Jericho Road or whether that was a story, the truth that the story expresses or the passage expresses is the same: that we should love our neighbour. And this is the point John Dixon makes: that that just because you you express something a truth by poetry or you express a truth in Non-literal language doesn't border down the authority of that truth. The other thing John Dixon does very well is he talks about, because he's a historian, he talks about the culture of, you know, the peoples of the ancient Near East. And that there are creation myths that are known that actually predate Genesis. So he, you could, for example, learn about the Babylonian... Um, creation myths that are earlier than Genesis and they're quite gruesome and horrible stories. I think that picture there is, um, is illustrating part of it but basically their, their story is that there's a mother and a father God and they've got all these children and the children rise up in a violent war against the parents and it's very gruesome and very bloody and bits of gods are flying off here there and everywhere flying off into space and making various parts of the universe. And one of the children gods rises up as the victor. And out of the pools of blood left over from the battle, as an afterthought, this God creates humanity. It's such a low view of humanity. Is it any wonder that the Babylonian culture just had such a low view of human life and practised things like child sacrifice? And into this culture, and, and, you know, this myth would have been as well known to the people around Israel as, for example, our story of Santa Claus. And into this culture breaks Genesis 1. There's not a violent mass of gods. There is one God. He's not creating the universe out of violence and anger, but he's creating the universe out of love. And... When he creates humanity, it's not as an afterthought but as the pinnacle of his creative work. And humanity is given this huge status in the book of Genesis and, and John Dickson talks about how this would have been like subversive theology, coming in and debunking the pagan myths that just said humanity was nothing It was um, must have been revolutionary, and he says human beings are not the product of a defeated God's blood. They are divine representatives created to exercise God's careful rule over creation to ensure that His interests are realized in the world. And that's you. That's you. You're created to realize God's interest in the world. And you are of inestimable value to God and to his purposes. But I hope you can see how how John Dixon's understanding of the genre of Genesis 1 actually lifts up the purpose of Genesis 1. It doesn't bring it down. It makes it greater. It doesn't detract from the key teachings of the Christian faith. God is the creator of all. Men and women are made in his image and a beautiful world is made for them. We might just click off that slide. Thank you. So I want to encourage us to exercise grace towards one another. When we find one another, you know, we might have slightly different views on some of this uh, creation Genesis 1 stuff. You know, Ryan was talking about family. When we get together as families, sometimes we have differences of opinion, and part of that is okay when it's not part of the core matters of our faith. So my conclusion is that faith and science are not in conflict. They're not in conflict. However, faith and science can coexist in the church. However, there is a battle out there. and I want to tell you where I think the real battle lies. Not with faith and science but it's with faith and scientism. I'm going to explain what I mean by that in a minute. So since the tragedy of 9-11, the new atheist movement has gained ground behind some fairly um, prominent scientists and philosophers. Uh, Richard Dawkins leads the charge, although um, his ideas are not new. So these sort of guys are collectively known as the new atheists. The major elements of their agenda are that religion is dangerous. It leads to violence and war. Secondly, we must get rid of religion and we can use science to do that. And thirdly, they argue that atheism can provide a um, a valid starting point for human ethics. I wasn't quite ready for that slide, but that's okay. (laughs) Um, sorry. So anyway, the new atheists pit science against faith. Even though I don't think they are really um, against each other, they pit science against faith. And yeah, we've got, um, that's my friend John Lennox up there. And this is how I define scientism. It's the belief um, that science is the only framework by which we can know the truth. It's the only source of knowledge about our humanity. Scientism doesn't acknowledge the limitations of science. We said science is just about looking at the natural world. Well, scientism is taking that philosophy further and not recognising the limitations of science. So Stephen Hawking, for example, who's a brilliant physicist and who's well qualified to comment on matters of physics, but in his book he goes outside of physics and says, the laws of physics are sufficient of themselves to account for the creation of the universe or the origins of the universe. That's not a statement of science. That's a statement of philosophy. There's no facts to back up that statement. So, we need to clearly understand the difference between science, which is backed up by certain observations or experimental evidence, evidence, and scientism, which is a philosophy that goes beyond that. Richard Dawkins believes that science can answer all of life's questions. He wouldn't recognise that distinction says science can answer all of life's questions if not today, then in the future. And he says that since science discloses no meaning in the universe, then there isn't any to be found. And he says this in a famous statement. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no good and evil, Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Isn't that such an impoverished uh, philosophy? No understanding of good or evil. You know, this philosophy, the end point of scientism is a human race that's absolutely hopeless, that has no hope, that doesn't understand the intrinsic value of every person that can't make clear distinctions between good and evil. There's no, nothing in scientism that can say what happened in Nazi Germany was evil. This philosophy has no basis to provide ethics to protect the weak of society. So it's the philosophy of scientism that we should oppose as Christians, not science itself. We can appreciate the beauty of scientific understanding. We enjoy every day the benefits of science that gives us in medical technology and other sorts of technology. But we should oppose the arrogance of scientism. But what's the bottom line? How do we more effectively share the gospel in this science-saturated world that we live in? in a world that, that is leaning towards scientism more and more every day. Well, you know, there's nothing new I'm going to tell you about here. It's the same thing that we always say. We've got to listen to people and love them. We've got to do life with them. And we've got to have confidence in the message of the Bible. You know, the first interaction I had with a, with a Christian person that I remember was when I was in year 12 in high school and we had uh, YWAM come to our school. Um, Pete was telling me he used to work with YWAM. They came to our school and um, did some skits and then they tried to have conversations with people and, you know, I was very arrogant and I thought to myself, I'm going to get this guy. I'm going to ask him a difficult question. And, you know, this was in the late 80s and um, test tube babies were the sort of latest thing, IVF was just starting out as sort of a controversial ethical issue. And I thought, well, well, I'm going to get this guy. And I said to him, well, what do you think about test tube babies? And I'll never forget the answer that he gave me. I can still remember how it made me feel. He said, look, I don't know about that. I just know that Jesus loves you. And I can just remember inside my heart, I just felt like crying. But because I was arrogant, I kind of stormed off. But I took one of his tracts, And that was kind of the start of my spiritual journey of discovery. Um, I hope I meet that guy in heaven. He did life and he listened and he loved. He, he probably had an opinion about IVF, but, you know, he realised that I probably didn't need his opinion right at that moment. I needed something more. So listen and love. Secondly, do life with people. And once again, we say this all the time. It's no different for science heads, atheists. Do life with those people. Try and connect with someone in your workplace or your um, university or wherever you're at. Find people you can do life with. There's this amazing book called The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens was one of the new atheists. And uh, the book's written by a guy by the name of Laurie Taunton. I've never heard of him before, but apparently he's a big kind of speaker guy in the US and he's done public debates with atheists. And Christopher Hitchens was one of those people who would Debate on the atheist side. Um, he wrote a book, I think, called God Is Not Great. But anyway, Larry Taunton didn't only debate this guy in public debate, but he befriended him. And he was there for Christopher Hitchens when Christopher gets a, a terminal cancer diagnosis. And Larry Taunton um, invites Christopher to go on a road trip with him through some beautiful area of, of the US, the Shenandoah Valley. And says to Christopher, would you read the Gospel of John with me as we as we travel? And it's just a beautiful story about how Larry introduces Christopher Hitchens to the Gospel of John. And they get to the part where Lazarus has died. And, um, and you know, Jesus comes and says to the sisters, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And um, Christopher Hitchens says these words. He... Uh, Larry reports it in his book. The great atheist debater replies, I'll admit that it is not without appeal to a dying man. So beautiful. And um, Larry says, you know, he doesn't know the end of the story. He doesn't know there was no public record that Christopher Hitchens ever put his faith in Christ. But Larry gave him every opportunity to do so by doing life with him. Finally, have confidence in the message of the Bible. I think there might be one more slide. Thank you. Have confidence in the message of the Bible. Scientism promotes no meaning in this life and no hope for the life after this one. Scientism can't comfort you in suffering. Scientism can't give you a sense of value, your own personal sense of value and meaning can't tell us why we're here or where we're going. Only faith in Christ, only the gospel is the answer to the cry of every human heart, whether they say they're a convinced atheist or not. The gospel is the power of God unto the salvation of all who believe. So don't be put off when you see in the media people blustering about how science has buried God. Don't be discouraged by, you know, the caricatures in the media of how, you know, Christians are ignorant and, you know, Christians are old-fashioned. Don't be put off by all of that. The message of Jesus still speaks to the most convinced of atheists. You know, um, I work at the patents office. I didn't have time to put up funny patents. Um, I would have if I hadn't been wanting to talk for so long. But I work all my colleagues are scientists with much higher qualifications than I have. And so I've really sought to want to share my faith with them and share the core message of the gospel and not get caught up on, you know, side issues like six days or millions of years, you know. Uh, and anyway, this week I was talking to my friend Sunil and I, I, he said, you know, they always ask you in the public... Who works in the public service? I've got a few friends. The standard question on Friday is, so what are you doing on the weekend? <laughs> And you kind of got to be ready for that question. Anyway, I was ready. For a change, I was ready. I'm not always. And Sunil asked me, and I said, well, I'm studying the Bible because I've got to prepare a talk. And he seemed to think that was a very strange thing to be doing. And I told him I was talking about science and faith. And he said, oh, I know what you need to do. You've got to watch The Young Sheldon. Um, And so so I got my my daughter's Netflix account and uh, found The Young Sheldon episode and it's a typical caricature of Christians, poor Pastor Jeff. You know, he gets shown up by this young kid who, because he doesn't really understand mathematics. And, um, anyway, I went back to Sunil the next, the, the, on Monday and said, yeah, I watched it and I felt sorry for Pastor Jeff. And uh, and he said, well, how did your talk go? And I said, well, I haven't given it yet. And I said, you should come. Um, and so he, he was going to come, but then out but never mind. I've got now a video because I had to do a video for North, so Sunil said he would read it. But you know, the gospel is the answer. The gospel is the is the need for every human heart. So you know let's be confident in the message of Jesus. You know it still speaks. It still speaks today. Scientism can't produce hope. Only the resurrection of Jesus opens the door to a whole bigger story that our world's longing for. we found the greatest possible treasure in the whole world. It is so worth investing everything we have our whole lives into sharing this treasure. So I want to encourage you today, if you've not investigated for yourself the message of Jesus, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, I would invite you to find someone and say to them, how do I I find out about this? And if you already know, I want to encourage you. Would you pray this week, God, who can I share this treasure with? How can I do life with somebody so that I can open a door to sharing faith with them? Why don't we pray together? Jesus, we thank you for your beautiful world that you've created, that you've made us, that's made for us, and that you give us such dignity in your world. Jesus, we pray that you'll help us to share this message of who you are and who we are and your love for us with others this week. We pray, Jesus, that you'd put on our mind and our hearts this week the people that you want us to do life with that you would speak to us about who we could take for coffee, who we could spend some time with, and that you would help us to pray for our dear friends that don't know you and for this world. We pray for our city and pray, Jesus, that your Holy Spirit will come and create hunger to know the truth of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Thank you so much for listening. I know that was a bit longer than usual, but... Yeah, if you've got any questions, I'm more than happy.